Thank you very much. I appreciate very much your uh, invitation and uh, your hospitality. I was given a topic, and so I'm going to read the topic that I was given. So if, uh, make sure that I got it right. How to navigate coming into bhakti after a Kali Yuga Western upbringing. Kali Yuga is a pejorative term. It's a, it means this present very corrupt age. How to integrate bhakti with one's material life, develop sustainable practices, avoid roadblocks and pitfalls on the path, etc. So did I get that right? That's the, uh, okay. Um, of course, the topic of how one has a, you know, quote unquote, spiritual experience, how one comes to spiritual life is really an ancient topic. And uh, of course, in Krishna consciousness, there are certain unique features, but I thought maybe I, I would begin with sort of the common denominators. If, if we study the history of uh, religion, the history of spirituality on earth, to the extent that history is documented in the West, going back to Greco-Roman times and in the East, of course, we have many stories from India and, uh, you know, there are Muslim Sufi saints who wrote their stories, how they saw the light and so on. And so it is a, in some ways, universal phenomenon. In some ways, of course, each tradition is specific. But the universal part is that we're born in this world uh, and um, we perceive the world through our senses. We are in a physical world. We have physical bodies that are equipped with five senses to, to perceive the world. And uh, at a certain age, some people begin to think, some people that doesn't really happen. But let's say if you're one of the fortunate people that at a certain stage in your development, you actually start thinking, then um, it becomes clear, I think, to a thoughtful person that the surface of reality is not everything. The surface of reality. Uh, because for one thing, we have values. And values are actually metaphysical. I, I don't want to get too much into technical philosophy here. But for example, a physical thing is like an apple or a tree or uh, an automobile or your body. Those are physical things. You can weigh them. You can measure them in other ways and so on and so forth. However, if we talk about things like justice or equality or mercy, those are not physical objects. The, um, the Western philosopher, uh, Scottish philosopher, David Hume, the bad boy of uh, Western philosophy, he made this distinction that, you know, between values, which are metaphysical and physical things, he made the point that you cannot empirically 
demonstrate or, or, or even really perceive, let's say a value, to give an example, let's say someone commits an act which we all accept uh, as evil, like let's say killing an innocent person. And so it's not controversial. There were no, it's not that by killing one innocent person that uh, that perpetrator, let's say, saved a million lives. And so it's one of those dilemmas you get in undergraduate philosophy classes. You know, what if by killing one person, innocent person, you can save a million innocent lives? It's nothing like that. Someone just committed a senseless murder with no benefit to anyone. And so if you physically study that act, you know, let, let's say you do all the forensics, let's say someone photographed, because nowadays I don't think anything occurs anywhere on earth that someone didn't get on their phone or something. So, so let's say you, you can study that, that criminal act, what we would call that morally evil act of killing the innocent person, but there's nothing in the empirical report. There's nothing in the evidence that actually you can grab onto and say, this is the injustice. This is the evil. This is because it's metaphysical. Metaphysical doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means it's not physical. This distinction was first introduced by Aristotle, or at least in the school of Aristotle, he used these words, uh, or his students did physical and metaphysical. Meta in Greek means beyond or after. So take equality. I mean, the conviction that most people nowadays have that despite the fact, even if someone is, let's say, is a much better tennis player than someone else, or someone got into a more prestigious university, or someone is better looking or has more money, that despite all of that, in a real sense, we are equal before the law, certainly. Equal justice, equal dignity before the law, equal rights. I mean, that is really a foundation of modern morality, of even political systems. The empirical evidence is that we're all different. Uh, so the idea that, that we should have political equality or legal equality, it's a metaphysical assumption. It's not based on empirical evidence, it's metaphysical. So therefore, uh, people today are not very philosophical. It's, um, this is a very bad age for philosophy, although people can text messages very quickly on their phones, which is sort of compensates for being sort of philosophically brain dead. But anyway, so, so the idea here is that if you believe that, let's say, equality is a real thing, that there really is such a thing as equality or justice, or that some things, acts are really good, acts of mercy, of generosity, of love. If you think that love can be a real thing, then uh, that means that you live in a bi-dimensional universe. You live, in a you live in a world in which there are real physical things and there are also real metaphysical things. And so then the question would be, that being the case, I mean, how, how does that work? So the, I actually am circling back to your question. It's not just that due to my advanced age, I have no idea what the original topic was. I'm actually kind of, I'm sort of taking the scenic road here. And so, um, 
So therefore, it has occurred to thoughtful people throughout history, in many different traditions, in many places in the world, that the physical world is just one part of reality. There's another part of reality. Then they ask the question, how could that be? And, and where does the world come from? And that's something you can't answer uh, according to physics or, you know, or astrophysics or, or cosmogony and so on. It, it, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a joke out there coming from philosophers that basically the position of the materialist is that just give us one free miracle and we'll give you everything else. The one free miracle is that from nothing, the universe came. It just sort of popped up, you know, the Big Bang. So, so they just, all they require is one free miracle and then, then they can explain everything. Of course, that's absurd because uh, the whole idea of, of modern science is that even time and space, which Einstein talked about, even time and space actually uh, didn't exist before the universe existed. So therefore the Big Bang didn't occur in time and there was no space. Anyway, forget all that. So many people, many people, many times and places have understood that there's something greater. And if you go deeply into your heart, most of the people that ever lived have come to the conclusion there's something like a God, capital G, you know, not just polytheism. And so, of course, the standard answer to that is, well, that doesn't prove anything. The fact that most people that ever lived thought there's some kind of divine source of everything. Really, it really doesn't prove anything. If some, because you always hear that. It's like you hear these things always. So, but if we say that that doesn't prove anything, that's a very dangerous thing to say for even for a materialist. Because by saying that, you are claiming that human testimony has no value. So if human testimony has no value, what about human testimony? For example, there's a, a real physical world outside your mind. What about human testimony that, that science works, right? Because 99% of advanced science, no one understands but a, a small elite group of people because it, it's so complicated, it's all symbols that no one understands except the guy in uh, Goodwill Hunting. Anyway, so, so therefore, um, we take it on faith. 99% of all the scientific truths that we're supposed to accept, we have not personally worked out the equations, but we take it on human testimony. So anyway, now get directly to the topic. Um, therefore, people throughout history who weren't um, sort of uh, cheated by materialism, which is not really a great philosophy, even on philosophical grounds. Um, they tried to understand, like, what is God? What is the source of everything? What is the nature of my existence? And, and people, because Krishna, God, is in the heart and reciprocates with us, people all around the world since the beginning of time have had, you know, what we call spiritual experiences. And those spiritual experiences can be very let's say materially disorienting because suddenly everything I thought was real is not really true or it's not the whole truth or it's not the most important truth. That's the experience I had. I actually woke up one day, I was in a Hare Krishna temple 
just kidding. So, um, you know, and the doors were locked and the windows were all bolted. <laughs> so, um, and Krishna, it, it's not all or nothing. I mean, the way God relates to us, it's not all or nothing. Either you join the Hare Krishna movement and, you know, give us all your money and, you know, just give up everything or forget it. You know, say hello to Lucifer for me. It's not really like that. Um, Krishna, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, that uh, uh, that everyone, God, Krishna is reciprocating with everyone. So if you kind of approach God 11%, I mean, Krishna, usually he'll give you 11%, maybe throw in an extra 3%. You know, it's like, it's like every day is a bargain day, you know, in, in, in the religious life. So, so Krishna, but the idea is that, that Krishna is reciprocating. Krishna is reciprocating with us. And he reciprocates with people all over the world. Someone may not know or recognize the word Krishna as the name of God. It may think, it may kind of scare them or, you know, is that from the devil or something? So, so whatever, you know, whatever name of God, whatever name of God someone has, I mean, Krishna knows. It's like a mother. If, if a little child is calling the mother, the mother's not going to say, well, unfortunately, you didn't really pronounce my name properly. You had, a, you know, and therefore, you know, keep working on it. And even though you're hungry and crying or in danger, um, you know, keep working on your phonetics there. And when you pronounce my name right, then I'll come. It's not like that. You know, the mother immediately knows that her child is calling and the mother comes because the child is calling the mother. So in the same way, if we really mean God, you know, whatever we say, it's like, hey, you or Krishna or whatever, uh, then there will be reciprocation depending on the quality of our consciousness. So therefore, now we get to the main point after that uh, long introduction. And then, of course, I'll do a few commercials. I try to sell, you know, a charity of merchandise. Just kidding. So, so therefore, this phenomenon, this phenomenon of going on with your life and thinking you kind of know what planet you're on, and this is my family, and these are my friends, and this is what I do. And then suddenly you have an experience which is so powerful that it, um, it just throws everything in, in, into a new perspective. And uh, in, in social science, of course, this is called a conversion experience. And there's a, whole, there's a whole academic field that studies the nature of conversion experiences and the effects they have on people psychologically and sociologically and so on. And of course, it's interesting because the word convert, vert, sorry, I'm having a historical linguistic attack, but the vert in convert actually comes from Sanskrit because there's a very common Sanskrit stem, vart, like vartate, pravartate, nivartate. So from the Sanskrit vart, you get English vert. So convert, it means to turn. So you turn to something else that's called converting. So um, Plato talks about the conversion experience, actually, in terms he's talking about not necessarily what we would call religion, but being converted to uh, or, or, or having a powerful spiritual experience. 
because Plato was a very interesting devotee. But so Plato says that we're, it's like we're living in caves. We're just seeing shadows of reality, which of course is right out of the, out of, out of the Bhagavatam. We're seeing shadows of reality. We're not seeing the real objects. And if someone manages to sort of come out of that cave into the light of the sun, and for Plato, God, I mean, sun is a sort of a metaphor for God, the source of light and so on, light as a, as a, as a, as a symbol of knowledge. And so, and so Plato says that at first, you may actually not see as well in the light as you did in the, in the darkness and the shadows, because, you know, if you're in a dark place and suddenly bright stadium lights go on, then, you know, you actually don't see so well until you get adjusted to that light. So, so going back to the topic here, the experience of coming to a powerful experience of God, of Krishna. And of course, because Krishna and God is a source of everything and the ultimate reality, the absolute truth, when you, when you actually have a genuine experience of God, it's, as we say in America, a brand new ballgame. It's, um, you know, it, it, it puts everything in a different perspective. Suddenly, everything has to be recalculated, like values. It's like if you win the lottery, suddenly, you know, okay, I got to rethink everything now. I mean, for one thing, if I'm looking for a, a partner, I probably have a lot more choices now, you know, if I have millions of dollars. And also, I don't have to live in this crummy little apartment anymore. And, and it, it, it just, it makes you look at everything in a different way. If you win the lottery, of course, most lottery winners end up in a few years almost worse off than they were before they won the lottery. But, um, so everything is seen from a new light. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with it emotionally? How do you deal with old friends or family when you're suddenly seeing them in a very new light? And... How do you deal with everything? How should you act? What should you not do? And so on. And so that's kind of what we're talking about. And that, and that is an issue which has um, challenged human beings for many, many thousands of years in many, many different traditions. And so it, it, it's not a new thing. Uh, so how do people deal with it? Now, in Krishna consciousness, of course, that's the universal part of it. The specific part of it is that we really won the lottery because we have Krishna. And I, I'm saying this not in a sectarian way. I, uh, I really don't like fanaticism, either in myself or other people. But I, I think on reasonable grounds, reasonable, rational, philosophical grounds, we can say that Krishna, the understanding of God as Krishna is the most advanced concept of God. It's not like uh, we worship the living God and everybody else worshiping a dead God. It's not that kind of lowbrow tribal stuff. I mean, we understand that many people in the world are actually worshiping God, the real God, and they're benefiting from their worship. If, you know, I don't think that includes terrorists who think that God wants them to kill innocent people, but let's say anyone, I mean, there's certain universal principles, be nice to other people, trying to be kind, trying to be grateful for all that you've been given by God, trying to develop love for God. There are all these universal principles that you find in many traditions. And if you look at Krishna consciousness, uh, 
I think, I mean, I think it's clear that this is really the most advanced understanding. Now that's a different claim. If I say that this is the only true religion and everything else is false, that's not philosophy. That's dogma. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of nasty fanaticism, but we're making a philosophical claim. And, and one point is that if you study the history of human religion, I mean, really all of it all around the world, and if, and if you look at the different forms of monotheism, because philosophically, let's say if you're a polytheist and there's all these different gods, that's also not philosophical because the real philosophical question, the real question that drives an intelligent person to seek God is, where does all this come from? What is it that ultimately gives meaning to existence itself? And unless I know where I come from, how can I know my purpose? And so, therefore, Plato makes this point again. I guess this is Plato night. But um, he's a really, he was a good guy, Plato. Uh, but Plato in his Republic, that famous work, The Republic, argues that he said something which was really like shocking and radical and revolutionary in his time. He said that we should not teach our children the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the reason this was so shocking is because that was like the centerpiece of the Paideia, the famous Greek curriculum. Greeks were famous for their curriculum. And uh, anyway, all, all over the Roman world, people, you know, people who were educated and could afford it, they would want to give their children a good Greek education. So... So the Paideia, the centerpiece was the Odyssey. So to say that don't teach the children Homer was very shocking. So why did he say that? He said, because Homer portrays deities in a very whimsical way. In a very whimsical way. They're kind of like these, I don't know, sort of like, you know, worst case adolescents. Like, like Zeus will say something like, Hera tells his wife, Hera, see that warrior down there in the battle at Troy? I think I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm going to smash that dude. Well, why, Zeus? Do you don't like him? I don't know. I just don't like him. It's like, I don't know. He's ugly or, or because he's fighting against my buddy and I'm going to, you know. So there, there, there's no real objective moral system. And if you study polytheisms around the world, uh, they tend to have this problem. And, and and so if you look at monotheisms, where, because even in physics, right, you're trying to find the one equation that explains all other equations, the, the singularity. So it, it's just the natural direction of thought, of philosophy, of science, to find the ultimate categories, the final equations that explain all equations. And so therefore, philosophers throughout time have tended toward monotheism. Now, there are two kinds of monotheism in the world. One is what I call tribal monotheism. Basically, my God can beat up your God, or, or we have the real God and you have a false God. Uh, tribal monotheism is, it's tribal. The other kind of monotheism, which you find in India and in the Greco-Roman world, is philosophical monotheism. Philosophical monotheism. In other words, you reason your way to the fact that there is one God 
And therefore, if someone else in some other tradition says there's one God, well, we agree because philosophically we're saying the same thing. And therefore, you can talk, well, what do you know about the God? Well, what do you know? And therefore, it's possible to have a reasonable, non-fanatical discussion. And if you have that kind of discussion, you will come to the point, I think, inevitably, that ultimately the highest point of knowledge is Krishna consciousness. So it's not a fanatical claim. It's not tribal monotheism. It's philosophical. And, and it's justifiable. And it doesn't, it doesn't delegitimize other approaches to God. It just says that here's, you know, here's a way you can come to the highest knowledge. So when you have that experience, I, you know, if I could do it again, as they say, I've come to a point in my own, because when I joined the movement, we were like, I don't want to say, you know, the walking crazy. It was, I, I, it was in the late 60s. I was in Berkeley. I was in Berkeley in the late 60s. I mean, there's actually a picture of me I can send it to you. It's, it's my brother and my, my older brother and myself, who's also a student at Berkeley. And we're right in the street in the middle of some big riot, you know, anti-something or other riot we were involved in. So we were on the front page of the Oakland Tribune. So I was in the middle of all that, all that revolutionary stuff. And then Prabhupada actually came to my campus. He came to Berkeley and he gave a talk. And I, um, I didn't join the movement immediately because you know, it took me a little while to become lucid. But um, I went home for the summer and I started going to the Los Angeles Hare Krishna temple. And then I, I had these powerful spiritual experiences. And I thought, oh my God, I'm not joining the Hare Krishna movement. Because I thought, you know, well, there go my friends, there goes my family. <laughs> And so <laughs> it's kind of something, it sort of became an unavoidable thing I had to do because I was having such powerful spiritual experiences. So, um, so the way I dealt with it was kind of immature. I mean, it was ecstatic, it was, but immature. And the reason is by analogy to elephant herds and gorilla families, <laughs> the reason I mentioned that is because if you study these um, relatively advanced mammals, uh, what we find is that when they're deprived of their elders, somehow the elders of the herd are not present, that these creatures tend to develop behavior that is antisocial, self-destructive, and so on and so forth. And so um, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, it was like in the whole worldwide movement, there was like one mature adult who was Prabhupada. And so, um, plus we were coming, I sometimes call it, you know, jokingly the Vedic Lord of the Flies, but anyway, but at least we didn't kill Piggy. So, but we did, um, and also we were coming from a revolutionary background, you know, take no prisoners. And so we were, so there were no adults around. I mean, technically I was 20 years old, but no one was really mature and it was a revolutionary period. And the result of that was this sort of this very radical interpretation of what it means to become a devotee. I think it was very sincere. I mean, I think there was no lack of sincerity, but it was, I mean, I would never accuse it of being a mature phase in the Hare Krishna movement. So, so what I did is, you know, I... Uh, <laughs> Just give you one example. <laughs> this is what not to do when you take up bhakti yoga. 
I, I was in Berkeley and I was taking a, a physics, physics class at Berkeley, which is like one of the great, it's one of the great physics departments in the world. And so um, the first day of class, the teacher said, okay, I just, I want to know how much you know. So I'm going to give you a little quiz. Doesn't count for the grade, just to understand, you know, what you know. So one of the questions was, what is energy? That was one of the questions. So I was like, so hardcore. I wrote down energy is the potency of the supreme personality of Godhead Krishna. There's the superior energy. <laughs> There's the inferior. I, you know, I, I did this whole little few paragraphs <laughs> and the teacher marked it wrong and I was livid. I was like, what do you mean? This is the absolute truth. You can see I was extremely mature. And um, <laughs> Okay, one last story at my own expense. I also had an advanced French class because I'd been taking French since high school. <laughs> you know this story. Whew. Anyway, so I went into the French class and it was taught by this guy, you know, professor. He was from Paris and he kind of met and exceeded everyone's expectations sort of like as a Parisian cad. In those days, they didn't have laws about like... Um, you know, you can't sexually harass the student. They didn't have laws like that back then. So the first day of class to illustrate different points of French grammar, he would actually call up like the prettiest girls in the class and literally dance with them across the classroom. <laughs> and so I thought, and here I was, you know, dressed in my dhoti, my robes and everything, my shaved head. And uh, I was thinking, you know, this is Maya. This is not... <laughs> You know, I wasn't thinking that, well, you know, probably 72 hours ago, I was worse than him. So, um, so then the teacher said, uh, the teacher said, okay, I want all of you, same thing as in physics, I want all of you to give a little talk in French for five minutes so I can see how much you know. Who wants to go first? Of course, no one wants to go first. So I wanted to go first because I had to rebuke this, you know, this moral uh, turpitude. So... I went home, you know, got out my French English dictionary, dogs, hogs. <laughs> so the next day, <laughs> the next day I went to class and I just, you know, I gave this fiery self-righteous, <laughs> you know, like astonishingly hypocritical talk. And, you know, and, and then the um, professor, of course, he loved it because the French was really good. I was actually good at French. He didn't realize that I was talking about him. So... Anyway, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that I wasn't close to being mature enough to actually continue my education at that time, and at the same time, you know, live in a Hare Krishna temple. But, but, but times have changed, I think, in the sense that we do have a lot of mature adults now. I mean, we actually, it's actually an adult movement, which is, I mean, for those who joined recently, they may take it for granted. Yeah, of course it is. You know, it's an adult movement. <laughs> but for those who were who joined a long time ago, it's like, wow, it's an adult movement. So uh, Krishna Kirtan, uh, he's a the president there in Delaware. He's actually a mature human being. He's an adult. And so, so we, I mean, we didn't have that back then. We didn't have that. And so, um, so as far as how you, if I could do it again, you know, now that I hopefully am a mature adult, you know, I, I, I would probably do some things differently as far as how I joined the Hare Krishna movement. For one thing, I think I wouldn't have dropped out of college back then. In fact, I wrote a letter to Prabhupada because I was a student at Berkeley. I even had a scholarship 
which kind of shows how, you know, they have poor standards back then for giving scholarships. But so, um, so I didn't know whether I should drop out of college. Like in those days, everybody was dropping out. You know, Timothy Leary, the poor guy who, who sort of popularized LSD and his, his whole motto was uh, turn on, tune in and drop out. So dropping out, I know my brother, my older brother who got a full scholarship to, uh, uh, we got a scholarship to Cornell University and also University of Connecticut in history. He's going to get a PhD in history. And then he got drafted because to the Vietnam War. I mean, there was no way in hell he was going to go to Vietnam. And so he fled to Canada. He dropped out of college. He went and became, actually became a Canadian citizen, later also came back to America and, you know, still an American citizen. But um, so dropping out, whether it was drop, whether it was fleeing the country because you were drafted into the Vietnam War, whether it was, you know, you you actually took Timothy Leary seriously, you know, and took LSD and, and dropped out. So therefore, it was just, it was the zeitgeist, as they say in German. Zeitgeist in German means the spirit of the time. And so we were coming out of that revolutionary age. And so, wow, I saw the light, Krishna. And so what do you do? You drop out because that's what everyone did who thought they had just seen the light. And so what's interesting is I didn't know what I should do. So I wrote a letter to Prabhupada asking him if I should stay in college or not. And Prabhupada wrote back to me and said, um, yeah, stay in college. I, like I said, he was the one mature adult in the Hare Krishna movement. So Prabhupada said that I, I should stay in college because um, he said, I want you to be well-educated so that you can present Krishna consciousness to other educated people. Prabhupada really wanted to attract intelligent people because he knew, he knew that's the head of society. And if we can establish Krishna consciousness as the head of society, the head is what moves the arms and legs. And so in order to spiritualize and, and save human society, which as we know, the world is, you know, to use the cliche, going to hell in a handbasket. So, so Prabhupada told me to stay in school. And at that point, I couldn't follow that instruction. I mean, I just couldn't. I was too immature and... As you can see, I wasn't going to get very far in my physics class or my French class. And, and so I actually dropped out. And at the time, I, wasn't, I didn't really think that I was disobeying Prabhupada, but and in a sense, I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the maturity to do both. Now, everything is very different. I mean, eventually, I went back to school. I, I went back to UCLA because I was living in LA. That's where I'm from. And then I went to Harvard and, and completed my, my education. But um, so now those of you who are learning about Krishna now, you have this great advantage. I mean, in, 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 in one sense, when Prabhupada was here, those were the good old days. And of course, Prabhupada was here. But in another sense, uh, I think your generation, uh, you have some real advantages. I will give an example of the Rocky Mountains the obvious analogy here, because when you're driving through the Rocky Mountains, let's say you're going like from Denver across to, you know, Grand Junction. And then of course, actually you go through Utah, Rocky Mountains. But when you're going through the Rocky Mountains, at least in Colorado, um, 
uh, it doesn't seem, it's not so impressive because the road is so high up. You're like, you know, sometimes 10,000 feet up or 8,000 feet up. So it just looks like you're going through hill country. And, but, but if you, let's say you, you come through going east and, 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 and you come to Denver, if you go like maybe 10 miles east of Denver and then turn around and look, it's like, that's when your jaw drops because you need a certain distance away to see how majestic and impressive the Rocky Mountains are. And the same thing for the Himalayan mountains. And so I think your generations, uh, I'm taking a wild guess that all of you are younger than me. So your generation, because you have more distance from Prabhupada in a sense, I mean, chronologically, in some ways you can really see him in some ways more clearly. And, um, and you have this great advantage, which I wish I would have had, but it just, you know, wasn't in the cards. I don't know if that's a Krishna conscious example, you know, the cards like <laughs> gambling. But anyway, it wasn't in the, it wasn't in the cards for me. And, and, and so, you know, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm eternally grateful for the wonderful life I've had. But I think all of you have this real advantage. You can, in a sense, see everything more clearly because you have more perspective. And you're joining a movement that actually had, there are adults in the movement, like Krishna Kirtan. He's actually a, an adult. And, uh, and the other devotees, the other leaders you have, I mean, you know, they're like mature human beings. So, so as far as getting to the, the question, like, how do you deal with <clears throat> the fact that Krishna has given you this powerful experience, and yet you still have to function in the world, <clears throat> I think having a job or going to school, I mean, it can be a great opportunity. It can be a great opportunity. And not only an opportunity to set a great example as a lady or a gentleman and attract people to your character, to your, the fact that you're just a really great person because you're practicing, and, and people who practice spiritual life should be really great people if they're doing it right. I mean, I mean, it should, they should really, develop strong character they should be generous they should be compassionate and uh and reasonable and so on not envious not jealous and so on and so forth and um so it's an opportunity to show people the truth that you can be a normal successful human being and practice bhakti yoga and that's, I think, a very powerful message. The word, because when you see people, with all due respect, you know, we you gotta love them. You know, when when you see people dressed very exotically and dancing in the streets, um, sometimes you know, for most people, they they they, um, they may think that, um, well, I I can't really do that. I'll give you two examples. One is you know a somewhat um, secular example, but. There is a uh, devotee, I won't mention this person's name, they live in another country. Very good devotee, very good devotee, very sincere, very intelligent lady. <clears throat> and uh, she went on a website for you know, finding marriage partners and uh, to see if there was someone who could respect Krishna, who could you know, support Krishna consciousness. Because sometimes the pool, you know, the inventory of possible mates can be very small, <laughs> in, you know, certain devotional communities. And so, um, 
So this lady who's a very good devotee, very, very good devotee. And it just so happens that she's very attractive externally and also internally, but she's attractive. And so she actually started breaking records for the number of likes. I mean, you know, the, the, this website was this uh, sort of dating or, you know, partner website was sending her these sort of, I guess, computer generated notices. You just broke another record. And she lives in a, in a country where the movement is very conservative. Like, you know, if you don't dress with Indian clothes, you know, you're sort of agnostic. Or if you, you know, it's like this sort of hard sell Krishna consciousness. And it, what's interesting is the devotees in that country, the leaders are absolutely convinced that everyone loves them and that they're having an incredible effect on the country. And, and yet, as soon as she, because she's a very honest person, as soon as she said that actually, you know, I am a, a devotee of Krishna, I practice bhakti yoga, this, this lady who was literally breaking records for the amount of interest she was generating, that was the last, she, she didn't get one more like. I mean, it just, it went from like record breaking to zero instantly instantly as soon as she said actually i'm a devotee of krishna it went to zero and this is in a country the devotees go out and they chant and dance and they really believe that you know they're convincing everybody i'll give one more anecdote this is this is of course anecdotal evidence it's not like social science but it's Interesting anecdotal evidence. Another example is when I went to Harvard uh, for my doctoral program. And um, what I found when I went to Harvard is that, and I was in the Sanskrit and Indian studies department at Harvard. And I found that the, um, the Hare Krishna movement, which would go to Harvard Square, because that's like one of the big places to do Hare Nam, to chant and dance, that the, the Kirtan party, the, the devotees chanting and dancing Harvard Square were like the running joke, the running gag of the Harvard Sanskrit Indian Studies Department. It was like a big joke to everybody. And devotees would go there and they would, you know, run around and jump and dance and everything. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So there I was in the Harvard Sanskrit Department and I didn't hide the fact that I was a cult member. That was a joke. I, I didn't hide the fact that I was, uh, <laughs> that, I was that I was a Hare Krishna devotee. Everyone knew that, you know, every day, first thing in the morning, I drink my Hare Krishna Kool-Aid. You know, I went there and I had, you know, I had on my neck beads and I had my bead bag and, you know, my, this extremely fashionable haircut. And, um, so everyone knew I was a Hare Krishna. I didn't hide it, but I did wear a shirt and pants. And as it turned out, I was kind of by far the best student in the graduate school there. And <laughs> it says, and I actually, I actually, they announced at my graduation that I'd gotten the fastest PhD in the history of that Harvard department. Sort of like half or three times as quickly, like, like twice as fast or three times as fast as the other students. And of course, they were Harvard students. They weren't like, like stupid, but so anyway, to make long story short, because 
because I was kind of a you know, nice guy. And this sounds, I don't want to sound vain, but I, you know, I think I am a reasonably nice guy. And I was, you know, friendly with the other students. And, you know, we were having, and the professors, I was, you know, had friends among the professors. And so um, what happened is after, after a month or two, the same people who were joking about the Hare Krishna movement started to say to me, could you tell me about the Hare Krishna movement? I was invited to give a, a talk in a Harvard symposium on Sanskrit translation. And I gave a talk defending Prabhupada's translation style, which is somewhat non-literal. And then Harvard Press, you know, the official press of Harvard University, they published my article. They published my article defending Prabhupada's translation style. And they just actually, was it last year? I can't remember it was last year. There's this thing called the Harvard Oriental series, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's like 130 years old. It's one of the most prestigious book series where they publish things on Asia and India. And the Harvard Oriental series uh, about a year ago published, and to show how prestigious it is, in over 130 years, they published 91 books. And number 91 of the Harvard Oriental series was my dissertation. So the reason I'm mentioning this is because obviously I'm a narcissist. Just kidding. No, the reason, I, the reason I'm mentioning this is because um, the same people who were just kind of literally like mocking the devotees, to give another example, twice, I had the, the entire, uh, entire Harvard department, all the professors and even a few professors from other departments and all the graduate students twice came to my house for prasadam and a get together. And, you know, the devotees were there and we all talked and everything. Twice, I had an entire Harvard department come to my house, which was kind of a big house. I didn't own it, but uh, so again, I didn't hide the fact. I, I didn't go to one extreme or the other. I didn't go there as a, you know, with my sacred garments. And also, I didn't hide. I, I didn't hide the fact of who I was. In fact, one time, my professor of mine, who was actually the head of the department, he was a friend. He's still a friend, actually. And um, he said to me one time, "You know, I noticed that uh, in the in the seminars, when you get bored, you seem to be chanting on your beads under the table." <laughs> so, um, so these same people who were who were actually laughing at devotees, you know, they were at least becoming respectful and inquisitive. And they wanted to know about it. They came, you know, for a nice. We had nice get-togethers. We had prasadam and so on. So I didn't. I didn't hide who I was. I didn't. I, I you know, I was very open. This is who I am. But I tried to fit in, not to hide or conceal myself, but because I actually like fitting in. I mean, some people, you know, some people, it's just their psychology. They like to be exotic, as we know. Some people really, that's, and I'm not criticizing them. It's just not me. Everyone has their individual psychology. And personally, I just feel comfortable when people are not staring at me. 
it's just not something that works for me is to have a lot of people in the public sphere staring at me. Not because they admire me so much, but just because they think I'm strange. It's just not something, it's just not me. And some people, you know, everyone's different. I'm not saying one person's different than another. But I think what we can say is that um, if we really want to go mainstream, and it, it's interesting because when I was in charge of uh, George Atlanta many years ago, 20 years ago for ISCON. And there was one lady in the temple who, um, I remember I kept saying to the doors, look, we have to be mainstream. We have to be respectable just so that people can approach us and people don't think it's such a radical, impossible thing to join the Hare Krishna movement. And um, I remember she said, she said to me, I hate the mainstream. I hate mainstream America. She obviously had a sort of a particular, I guess, childhood, but. And so why do I want to go mainstream? Uh, basically, I'm inspired by a verse in the Bhagavatam. And that verse in the Bhagavatam, which Prabhupada used to quote is, uh, it's about the qualities, the personal character and qualities of an advanced devotee. And the Bhagavatam says, that serious devotees are tolerant. Karunika, they're merciful. And Karunika, Suridak Sarva Dehinam. And they're the well wishing friends of everyone. And the word that Prabhupada used to translate well wisher is literally Suhrit, which we still have in English, by the way. Sorry, okay, little linguistic break here. Uh, if you wanted to go out and, you know, get a drink of water, now's your chance. But so, Su in Sanskrit means good. Like, for example, Sukriti, a good deed, or someone that performs good deeds. And so this Su in Sanskrit, as you know, as Sanskrit moved west, the S was pronounced in Persia, which borders what was Bharat Varsha. In fact, ancient Persian is a dialect of Sanskrit. I don't know if you were aware of that. So as Sanskrit, as the words prefix su moved west, uh, the Persians pronounced the su as an H. That's why you get from the Sindhu River, you get Hindu. Now, as these words, because there was tremendous cultural influence from India, so as, as this vocabulary kept moving west, the next stop is Greece. And the Greeks do not pronounce an H at the beginning of a word. So you get Sindhu, Hindu, India. That's where you get the word India. So anyway, so, and we still have it in English. Now what happened is the way the Sanskrit su has come down to us in English as a prefix is EU, U, like an euphemism or eugenics, good breeding, or all those U words. So the EU in English is just Sanskrit su. And then the um, hurt, hurt, actually, no one pronounces Sanskrit right, but H vowel R T is actually pronounced hurt, exactly like H U R T in English, hurt. 
Sue Hurt. So obviously from Hurt, we have the, that's where the word heart comes from. And so the word Suhrit, which is the word in the Bhagavatam, and also Krishna says, you should know me as Suhrdam Sarvabhutanam, as a well-wisher of everyone. So anyway, that sounds like the word Suhrit. We, we still have those words in English. But the Bhagavatam says that a Vaishnav is Suhrdam Sarvabhutanam, the well, so literally has a good heart toward all living beings, has a good heart, a good heart toward everyone toward all creatures. And obviously, if you have a good heart towards someone, you don't kill them and eat them. So my interpretation of that statement, that a Vaishnava is Suradang Sarvabhutanam, and other statements that Krishna himself makes. For example, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that Samoahang Sarvabhuteshu, I am equal to all living beings. Uh, so, okay, one more little linguistic nugget. The word sama means equal in Sanskrit, samo. And again, S to H, you get the prefix homo, like homogeneous. That's where we get the English prefix homo, it's Sanskrit samo. But anyway, so Krishna says, I'm equal to all of these things. Name dveshosti. I don't hate anybody. And the may priyaha, I don't favor anyone. And then Krishna tells us, if you actually want to um, achieve the highest bhakti, the highest stage of love of God, you must be equal to everyone. You must be equal, you cannot discriminate. You must practice equality in how you see everyone. And, and, and Krishna says, Pandita Samadarsanaha. The truly wise people see everyone equally, not only different kinds of human beings and different colors and shapes or genders, but even all species of life. All species of life. Vidya, Binaya, Sampane, Brahmane, and so on. So that's a requirement. If you want to advance in Krishna consciousness, you must practice equality. You must be equal to everyone. And since we're supposed to be compassionate, if I present, now here's my reasoning. Prabhupada said that religion without philosophy is just sentimentalism or fanaticism. So this is my reasoning. Prabhupada once wrote me a letter. Actually, I was, I was a grihasta, I was married. You know, honk if, if you're married. So I was, I was actually, I had a great wife, wonderful wife, <clears throat> who's still a great devotee. It's just that it just kind of was meant to do what I'm doing now. So, uh, and I was the first president in Gainesville, Florida. They have the big community in Alachua, you know, by Gainesville. So I was the first temple president when I was a, I was a householder. And um, so Prabhupada once wrote me a letter because, you know, I would correspond with Prabhupada. And he once wrote me a letter and said that, um, he said that we should not engage in mental speculation. I mean, if you've been around devotees, you've heard that one. That uh, we should not engage in mental speculation. He said, but we can engage and should engage in philosophical speculation. It's, it's a letter to me. Uh, and so, 
It's in the database. So what did he mean by that? Prabhupada, of course, sometimes he had his own jargon. You know, he, he would use words in a special way. So Prabhupada gave me this example. That rasoham apsukontea. Krishna says in the Gita uh, that, maybe you don't know sense, that Krishna says, I am the taste of water. Rasoham apsukontea. I am the taste of water. Now, Prabhupada said, if you speculate, is that really true or not? Is Krishna's statement true? That's what Prabhupada meant by mental speculation, one of the, you know, deadly sins of Bhakti Yoga. So, so that we, but Prabhupada said, if you believe Krishna, but then you try to understand, what does that mean? What does Krishna mean by that? Prabhupada said, that's philosophical speculation, and you're allowed to do that. Reducing my use of plastic. Can you see it? It's a, I bought one of these thermoses to reduce my... Yeah, I mean, I, I was born right by the Pacific Ocean. It really, I'm, re, I'm seriously concerned about what they're, how they're destroying the Pacific Ocean, but anyway. So, um, sort of a family tie to the Pacific Ocean. So anyway, so I'm trying to understand um, what does it mean in my practical life? What does it mean to see everyone equally, equally, which I have to do, which I have to do if I want to achieve the highest bhakti, Krishna says. So what that means to me in terms, first of all, it means I'm trying to help everyone. I care about everyone, you know, no matter what their species or race or blah, 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 gender. So we care about everyone, but also, so, so how do I care that? What does that mean in practice? What it, what it means for me as someone who's really trying to spread this movement, uh, that I want to, when I walk out the door of my abode, when I walk out the door and you know I'm out in public, I want to place myself equidistant, equidistant, you know, an old uh, geometry term from your younger days. I want to uh, place myself equidistant from everyone. I don't want to lean toward one little sub community, you know, subgroup in the society and lean away from another group. So if I go out there and I'm dressed in a very kind of exotic way, not exotic in an absolute sense, but exotic for America, then I am facilitating, you know, facile, making it easier for some people to approach me and making it more difficult for other people to approach me. And if I do that, I feel this is me, my personal, you know, testimony here. Uh, and that is that I feel a moral obligation, a spiritual obligation to be fair to everyone. I'm really like justice is a big thing for me. I mean, I don't want to be self-righteous about it, but I really care very deeply about everyone getting the same fair shot, whether it's in a court of law or whether it's in approaching a Hare Krishna devotee. So, um, so on what grounds would I do that? If there is some intrinsic value in exotic dress, again, this is a relative term, exotic in America, if there is some intrinsic value, then I could say, well, it may be strange, but it's essential. Like, for example, someone may find it exotic to chant Hare Krishna and not Amazing Grace. 
although I really like Amazing Grace too. So, but someone may find it exotic to chant Hare Krishna, but it's sorry, I can't change that. That's what we do, we chant Hare Krishna because that is an essential practice, essential spiritual practice to achieve a certain very advanced level of, of consciousness. So there's a distinction. Some things that we do are just non-negotiable. I guess like overeating on Sunday, that was a joke. So, so there are certain non-negotiables like we chant Hare Krishna. Actually, there are three. This distinction is found in our tradition, Rupa Goswami. Rupa Goswami in the Nectar of Devotion, in chapter six, he says, there are fundamental principles you cannot change. And there are details, just, you know, specific applications that you can change. For example, a fundamental principle is before we eat, we should offer our food to God. Why? Because if not, we're like, ungrateful pigs you know it's not some like exotic hindu rituals just you know be a lady or a gentleman don't be an idiot i mean if you let, let, let's say for example i mean when i was a kid when i was a kid i used to, i had you know i had a good friend i used to you know sleep over at his house a lot and so they were actually much richer than our family so and that's not why i went there but so I so whenever I, I so I ate a lot of meals and of course I tried to be you know I, I had a very good parents and I you know I learned I, I learned to be crazy later but at least when I was that age I was a gentleman and so I would thank them and if they said okay first eat this and that you know was, I I was grateful and I was a gentleman so offering your food to God it just means you're not a barbarian that's all it means it means that you're grateful. So that's the general principle is that we offer our food to God. Now, what do you cook? Well, let's say we don't eat meat, fish, or eggs, and a lot of devotees are also vegan. I won't get into that discussion right now, but at le let's just go with the point that we don't eat meat, fish, or eggs. So um, that's also something which I, I can't really change. I mean, if someone says, I can't be vegetarian, I'll say, well, chant anyway, chant Hare Krishna, and someday, you know, you'll make it. So it's not that we reject people, but if you want to seriously practice bhakti yoga, you cannot be cruel to other creatures in that way. And like I said, that leads a lot of devotees to be vegan. So, um, but let's say someone says, well, you have to cook Indian food. Really? No. Krishna doesn't say in the Bhagavad Gita, offer me a chutney, a pakora, a sabji, and I will accept it. So, and some people love Indian food. A lot of Western people love Indian food. I mean, it certainly it's a very rich cuisine. Personally, I can't eat spicy food. I never ate it when I was growing up. And if you serve me something with chili, I'll end up, you know, on the floor choking. So, you know, I like, I just like sort of like, you know, simple Western food. That's why I like, like fruit salads. And anyway, and, uh, you know, I even like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. These back in the days when I could digest peanut butter. So, so like what you offer Krishna, I mean, half the things that in India or, or in very conservative temples, they offer the deities, half the things come from Muslims anyway. Like, 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 uh, what is it like halava? You know, it's a Middle Eastern preparation. Halava or um, there's all kinds of things. Uh, 
the uh, just slipping my mind now. But anyway, so um, so that's so the the basic principle is offer your food to God. In other words, be civilized, be a lady or a gentleman. Offer your food to God, and uh, and avoid food which is obtained through cruelty. And, uh, and eat food, which also Christian says in the mode of goodness. In other words, eat food, which tends to make you peaceful and not all excited and agitated. So basic principles and then details. So in the same way, there is no basic principle at all. No basic principle in any Vedic literature, in any teaching of Prabhupada that requires us to go out in public dressed in a very exotic ethnic way. It, it just isn't. It's just, it's just a simple fact. You know, it's like they say, read it and weep. So, I mean, it's, it, I'm not stigmatizing or criticizing people that do like that style. I'm just saying it's not required. And Prabhupada said that. You can read this in database. It's everything Prabhupada wrote and said. The devotee asked Prabhupada, why do we wear these Indian clothes? And Prabhupada said, because you wanted to. I never said you had to do it. And if, if so, if you look at, I, I, I wrote an essay actually, which I give pages and pages of Prabhupada quotes. Prabhupada said to me personally, uh, Prabhupada said to me personally in Honolulu that uh, he said, I never said you had to wear Indian clothes. When I received, when Prabhupada visited my zone, I, I, I was in charge of Latin America back then. And uh, Prabhupada came and he visited us. He came to Mexico City and then Caracas, Venezuela. And uh, I was wearing a sport coat. You know, I mean, I told you a sport coat. Prabhupada never said a word. You know, he didn't like, why are you wearing that Western sport coat? When they're perfectly good, you know, Indian bundies, whatever. So, so anyway, uh, so getting back to the point, as far as the original topic, like, let's say you've seen the light and now you understand that Krishna is, you know, the man. <laughs> so you've seen that light. So um, actually the lady too, we have Radha and Krishna. So I think the more you can uh, work your way into people's hearts, just, I mean, personally, I find that, um, what I feel like I'm morally required to do, me personally, fits my own nature. I want to be equal to everyone. I want to go out and, and, and you can say, sometimes arguments are given, well, there's so many different, oh my God. Uh, oh, a devotee just visited here. Uh, let's see, now. Oh, let me just let her in the door, okay? Very intelligent young lady from Florida. Just visiting, let me just let her in. Don't go away. I hope I don't come back and you're all gone. Like, we're not going to take any more of this. Okay, I'll be right, right back. As Maharaj has stepped away, I think Sivarni may have Oh, no, I'm back. I'm back. You're not rid of me yet. I just... Um... So, uh, actually, you want to say hello to everybody? Okay. She is fluent. Let me, let me take off my, my screen, by the way, if you're wondering what my background is. 
that is the house where Jane Austen wrote all her books. So um, I'm a, anyway, that's a whole other topic. Well, you can continue to introduce. No, I'll introduce you. I think they're, let's see, choose virtual background, none. Could you close that door? Otherwise it looks ugly. <laughs> Here's Jenya. Hi, Krishna, everyone. Hi, Krishna. Not sure who's there, but nice to meet you. They're in Delaware of all places. Oh, wow, fantastic. Jenya is just about to begin graduate school. She's very, very smart. 800 on her SAT verbal. I'm a proud spiritual parent. So <laughs> make yourself comfortable. Okay. So, um, so I, I think that uh, if you study the history of religions, establishing ourselves as model citizens, true to our spiritual principles, at the same time, nice people, considerate, intelligent, successful, it's a very powerful way to spread Krishna consciousness. I mean, the, I mean, a great example is the, actually, this room is kind of ugly. I'm going to go back to Jane Austen. Okay. Prepare yourself. Where'd it go? Where's my Jane Austen? Oh, my God. Oh, there it is. That's in Chawton, in the province of County of Hampshire in England. Anyway, um, I think it's just a very, look, if you look at, look at the Indian community in America, they're probably the most successful community in the country, immigrant community. And uh, I think they're a great example. I think we can really learn from them. I mean, you know, there are, I mean, two Indians that came to America, or, uh, maybe they were born here from Indian family, became state governors recently. Louisiana, South Carolina, as we know, there are people, Indians, who are the head of some of the most important corporations in the world, based in America. So how do they do it? Why are they so successful? Because, well, first of all, they're intelligent people, and they were able to preserve a good deal of their culture, but at the same time, they're able to fit in. I think it's a great lesson we have to learn. Here we have a community, mostly Hindu, from a Hindu background, except Krishna and Bhagavad Gita, and they're like the most successful immigrant community in the United States. So obviously, they know how to, and if you go to Indian homes, you'll typically find in America, they really are still Indian homes. I mean, the furniture, the pictures on the wall, the food in the kitchen, I mean, it's not that they're just like totally assimilated. I mean, they really have a sense that of being Hindu and they tend to live in the Hindu neighborhood, but they're wildly successful. They're like extremely successful in America. And, and so I think that it's a big lesson to learn. We can be faithful to everything that's important to us, that's really vital, that's fundamental, and yet we can be very successful in this country and we can bring many, many people to Krishna. So I think if you are, if you have a job, if you are in school or, or whatever you're doing, I'd say, see it as an opportunity. It's like, you know, it's, it's your daily workout. When you go to the job, when you go to school, you've got to see Krishna in everyone's heart. That's your assignment. You know, you have to see Krishna everywhere. And if you say, well, it's not easy, practice. You know, that's what we do. We practice bhakti yoga. And so we go to a temple because in a, in a temple room, let's say if you go to the temple, 
because the temple has the ideal conditions to remember Krishna. I mean, if you can go to a Hare Krishna temple and forget Krishna, there's really something wrong with you. Because when you go into the temple, you know, there's pictures of Krishna everywhere. And, you know, the deity is there. And, uh, turn off. And um, so it's, but why? So why do you go to a temple? Krishna's everywhere. Because the temple gives you the perfect conditions to think of Krishna and practice so that when you walk out the temple door, you keep seeing Krishna everywhere. That's the whole point. In fact, there's this verse in the Bhagavatam that says, Archayam eva haraye, pujang hate, nata bhakteshu chanyeshu, so bhakta prakrta smitta. If a person only sees Krishna in the temple and not in the hearts of everyone and in the devotees, then it said that when I say see, I mean, you know, we're working up toward the actual that one fine day suddenly, oh my God, it's Krishna. He's really blue. No, I, but you know, we can, but if you read Bhagavad Gita, when you read Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, all it's in my book, The Gita Guide, infomercial alert. So in my, anyway, what I explain in that book is that Krishna often talks about knowing as seeing. So if you know something, it's a way of seeing. He says that you should approach a guru. He says, Tattva Darshina, people have seen the truth, Tattva. And so this is throughout the Gita, Krishna talks about knowing as seeing. So if you have enough knowledge, enough experience, you know that this is the right path, then you have to practice. You have to remember that every living body, it doesn't matter gender, race, species, age. I want to get totally intersectional here. So it, um, every living body is a temple. So you go to the super temple, which is, you know, the local temple to practice, but every living body is a mandir, is a temple because Krishna lives in the heart of every living being. And, and, and so that's real Krishna consciousness. So if we are just, we think, okay, I went to the temple, I did puja, or I saw the deities, and now, you know, I'm good for the week. That's not the idea. The idea is that Krishna is everywhere. And Krishna says, Jomang Pashati Sarvatra, one who sees me everywhere, Jomai Sarvam Pashati, one who sees everything in me. That's the real yogi, meaning spiritualist the real spiritual practitioner. The real yogi is one who sees me everywhere in the heart of everyone and sees everything in me. So uh, if you're out there in the world and you're trying to practice bhakti yoga, good for you. You know, you got your work cut out for you. Every day when you go to your job or go to school or whatever you, wherever you go, you know, it's just uh, put on your devotional gym clothes. <laughs> And the guru is just like, you know, your personal trainer. And of course, you know, and, and the other leaders, they're, you know, Nimai and Krishna Kirti, you know, all these very nice devotees that are there. Um, you know, they're all personal trainers. So, uh, yeah, we're not fanatical. We're not crazy. We just look like it sometimes. So, but that, that's Krishna consciousness.
So any questions? Thank you, Maharaj. It's so wonderful to hear from you, especially the deep realization and years of experience. I'm very grateful for the Sangha is taken this advantage of your association. Tonight's program is primarily hosted our Sodal Bhakti house. So they will get the first opportunity to ask any questions before we go for online. Yeah. So Who has a question? Thank you, Maharaj, so much. My pleasure, really. I, uh, excuse me, Maharaj. Uh, AC Swami Maharaj. Go for me, Maharaj. Hey, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Do you want me to hold it? I'll hold it. I mean, uh, I think she almost might hold it. Uh, Hare Krishna, um, AC Swami, uh, AC Go Maharaj. Yeah, um, I, I, I've been called worse things. <laughs> uh, my my question is uh, uh, during uh, my uh, existence on this earth, I see that my generation has a fearfulness of being themselves. Uh, and I don't know if it's in this uh, Krishna conscious movement of devotees being fearful of being themselves. But you stated something that was very enlightening. You, you were comfortable with yourself, but at the same time, you integrated with the environment. Uh, what kind of steps where we can do the same thing uh, in maturity, unrelenting in, in our devotion and you know, not breaking you know, the right of uh, uh, religious regular uh, regular principles, but still be appealing like a bimba fruit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If I answer these questions, I can win valuable prizes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think there's a balance. It's, it's a very good question. I think there's a balance in this sense that one extreme, I think unhealthy extreme, is to say that I have to be what everybody wants me to be. I can't be myself, right? And it's, um, you know, not really. Just what, what did Oscar Wilde have this? He said, the way he put it, he said, just be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. So, but then the other extreme, the other extreme is this sort of nonsense you hear all the all the time like you know you're perfect the way you are you know you're just you know you know you should realize i i'm just perfect the way i am I, that's crazy i mean if 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 you let's say you started school and you thought i'm perfect the way i am you would still be illiterate i mean i mean they, they had this great expression now i'll you know go back into my reservoir of uh, jane austen sayings and that is, they had a very interesting figure of speech back then, about roughly 200 years ago, 220 years ago, where people would say, I want to improve myself. It would mean it could be learning a musical instrument. It could mean studying, could be maybe, uh, you know, developing better character. So it seems to me the real joy of life is getting better. So this idea of like, you know, everyone is perfect the way they are, no. 
if I thought I was perfect the way I am, how could I ever practice spiritual life? How could I ever get over my bad habits? How could I ever learn to be nicer to people? How could I, I'd, I'd be a fool. So I think, what, I mean, the way I am now is, is, I think, good enough so I can be myself, but I would never say, I, I, it's kind of like this collective narcissism nowadays. You know, everyone is perfect and there's nothing wrong with anyone. It's just, to me, it's just madness, especially, I mean, the, I mean when I was growing up, uh, modesty was considered a virtue. Now it's considered a psychological disorder. So anyway, um, so I would say be yourself. And part of being yourself is knowing yourself in the sense that, you know, any sane person knows that I have some bad habits. Sometimes I treat people in ways that's not the best or, or I should maybe respect myself more or I should, I mean, every, any intelligent, sincere person knows I have room for improvement. And so therefore, I mean, therefore you can be yourself and let's say compensating for qualities that you, know, you want to improve. For example, let's say I have a bad temper. Actually, when I was young, I did have a bad temper. I mean, I had a few nicknames when I was a kid for my bad temper. But um, so if I realized that, you know, somehow I had this nature, I mean, not that I was like a raging monster, but, you know, I was a pretty normal kid, but I had a sometimes a bad temper. And so therefore, if I'm talking to someone and I kind of feel a little anger, I think, don't be stupid. You know, so I think to myself, don't be a fool. Don't be stupid. Just, you know remain calm and be a gentleman. And so you can be yourself, but I think part of being authentic is you being the person that wants to improve. Not guilt-ridden, not I hate myself because that's a wacko other extreme, but just thinking, yeah, I mean, Krishna loves me, so I can't be that bad. And if I see myself through Krishna's eyes, which is a great way to look at things. I mean, that's why we read Bhagavad Gita to see the world through Krishna's eyes. So if Krishna loves me eternally and I'm seeing myself through Krishna's eyes, then I love myself in, in a you know, non-psychopathological way. So as far as self-esteem, I mean, it's, it's not this sort of crazy modern idea of self-esteem that, yeah, I'm great and I'm perfect and I'm this, which is just basically cultivating narcissism. The real self-esteem is that I'm an eternal soul. I have a perfect pure form, which is kind of, you know, kind of took a little bath in the mud there, but, but ultimately I am an eternal spiritual being. Krishna loves me. So if I see myself through Krishna's eyes, I'm going to see a pure soul who just needs to, you know, take a bath in a sense. And that's actually what Krishna says in the first, Lord Chaitanya, the first Sikh Shastaka. Sarvatma snapanam. Snapanam means bathing. That the Sankirtan movement is bathing us. It's washing off the mud. So see yourself as Krishna sees you, as an eternal soul, as something wonderful, 
as someone worthy of God's love, but as someone that needs to improve. And the other extremes are hating yourself or just being a narcissist, which is kind of mainstream nowadays. It's like, I'll just give you one example. I lived for many years, um, not that many, I don't know, maybe, God, how many years? Want to give you a, want to give you a good number. Maybe like about 12 years or something. I lived um, very close to UCLA. It's a very beautiful area, that Westwood, that part of the city. So, so I, you know, at least three or three, four times a week, at least I would like take my Joppa walk. I'd chant my Joppa and I'd walk on the UCLA campus. The humanities part, which is very beautiful. The engineering section is ugly. And the, anyway, so, you know, sometimes when I was walking during the day, I would overhear, because UCLA, they get lots of these tours and they get lots of groups of high school students or maybe transfer students that are they're giving them a tour of the campus, trying to sell them on UCLA and sort of cultivating them, you know, hatred for the USC Trojans. But anyway, so I remember there was one tour and um, the, the girl was giving the tour. And of course, what she said was just what she's supposed to say. She was talking about the study abroad program. And of course, you know, like any good university, they have all kinds of options. And then she was saying, like, she was trying to tell the students, like, you know, you can do everything your way. You totally design everything. And, and I was thinking, seriously? Like, maybe there's a remote possibility that someone that's been doing, managing study abroad for 30 years might know something that a 19-year-old student doesn't know. And so it was just like this, you know, and they even have, you know, university campuses, they put up these little, like, they have a theme, whatever the theme is, like appreciating professors or diversity of students is that, and they'll put these little banners up sort of on light poles all over the campus. And so I remember one time at UCLA, it was like, basically, you know, you're wonderful, you're great, you're perfect. And I was thinking, what the hell is going on here? Is there any sanity left in the world? No, you're not perfect. I mean, you're an eternal soul and you're, you're glorious, but you're certainly not perfect. And so um, that's the balance. Be yourself as the person that knows their faults, but at the same time knows that I'm really an eternal soul and Krishna loves me and therefore I have great value and I want to do better. That's kind of like the self-esteem thing. So any other question? Maharaj, I think we're, we're out of time for tonight. Okay. Well, sorry if I didn't get to answer your question. We'll do it again. Uh, yeah. What we can do is Maharaj, yeah, they, they, they are out of time for them, but those are online. They can go ahead and ask questions. Is that okay, Sivan? You can mute. Sure. Can you get a chance? Yeah. 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 If you want to do that. Yes. Um, anyone who'd like to ask question and uh, please feel free. Raise your hand or I uh, hope everyone knows how to raise it. Andrew. Yeah. Andrew, please go ahead. Uh, hello, it's the uh, Goswami Maharaj. Um, I have been in Krishna consciousness for about six months. I'm chanting, working my way through the Bhagavad Gita. And I was wondering, what would be your number one piece of advice for a new devotee? Oh, wow. Uh, number one piece of advice. That's actually a point I wanted to cover. 
And that is, you know, wherever you come from, we all come from such different psychologies. We have different psychologies. We come from different backgrounds. Some people had great families. Some people had terrible families. You know, we're just in all different situations. But the common denominator is if you really open your heart to Krishna, if you really trust Krishna, if you really chant his name with all your heart, whatever background you come from, whatever, you'll make it. You'll survive and you'll do really well. That's, that's the most essential point is because when you're chanting in Kirtan, no one knows what you're really thinking. Only Krishna in your heart knows what you're really thinking. And so you can externally look like you're a great devotee or externally you can look like a bum. But if in your heart, you're really giving your love to Krishna, then Krishna knows it and he's going to save you. So I'd say the most single, most important thing is be sincere, be genuine, be really, really give your heart to Krishna and he'll always protect you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you answering my question. I have a question. I don't know how to butt in. Oh, you just did. So I wasn't sure. Hare Krishna, Prabhu. Thank you very much. Drop in uh, welcome. Yes. You, you mentioned three fundamental principles, but you only named two, offering your food to God and chanting Hare Krishna. Oh, sorry. What was the third one? Very good. Someone was paying attention there. Okay. One principle is getting our philosophy right. Don't change Prabhupada's philosophy. And there's a difference between Prabhupada's social commentaries and actual philosophy that don't change Prabhupada's philosophy, the philosophy, our eternal Vaishnava philosophy, don't change the spiritual practice. Prabhupada gave us a spiritual practice. And Prabhupada also wanted very much that we work within his mission, ISKCON. And that was not simply a, a, a sectarian request. It was actually, um, if you know anything about the history of religions, you know that keeping somehow a united mission is much better for the world it's overwhelmingly more likely that we will be able to help large numbers of people if we stick together. Do you think that can become cultish? Oh, sure. It does all the time, some places. But, but, um, but things which may be cultish for some people, but there's a rational way to do it. The fact that someone does something in a fanatical way doesn't mean that same activity can't be beneficial if it's done rationally. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, anyone else has any questions would like to ask? Maharaj, while he's here. Um, well, yes, Prabhuji. Um, uh, Hare Krishna, Prabhuji. Indrani here from Delaware. Hare Krishna. <laughs> yeah, thank you for. Uh, do, you have, do you have a video? Do you have video? I do have a video, yes. <laughs> Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to see you. Like uh, it was so mesmerizing hearing you throughout. So I was uh, listening that uh, so far I remember you were saying there are, that there is uh, one universal principle or uh, law to realize God. But I think I missed the connection what you were talking about. Like uh, you, how may not, you, yeah, you may not have missed it. I may have forgotten. <laughs> the, um, I guess that universal principle would be love devotion and of course respecting god is you know there's value in that it's 
it's at least you respect God, but but our eternal connection with God is love. And, and that's our nature. As we know, we're only really happy when we're in love. You know, you can love a partner, you can love your children, you can love your parents, unless, unless you're a life without love is, is, is actually not really very satisfying. And so, and, and a, a, a brilliant point that Prabhupada made in his, uh, his natural devotion is that, it's like, let's say you have a, a light, a flashlight, which in England they call a torch, in India I think they call a torch, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you just flash it into the night sky, the light literally can go trillions of miles. I mean, it can just go for millions of years. Whereas if you flash that same light inside a little box, it ain't going nowhere, to use the colloquial expression. So, so the same way with love. You cannot, you know, no matter how hard you try, you cannot love someone more then that person is lovable. And some people are distinctly not lovable, at least in their current incarnations. I mean, maybe as eternal souls are lovable, but at least in their human, you know, doing business as so-and-so the human, they are not so lovable. And you can try, you know, therapy and counseling, this and that, you know, maybe keep a family together, but I, I'm not, but it's, some people are just not that lovable. So the more lovable someone is, or they can only be loved at a distance and, you know, through the filter of philosophy. But when you meet someone, when you meet someone that's actually lovable, then, you know, life is just, life is great. If, if you find someone that's lovable and they love you and you love them, and, and, and if you can be with that person for a while and, and, and not, you know, want a refund or your money, you know, something like that, then... In other words, you meet someone, you love that person, and then you think, oh, my God, I've been with this person a year, and I, I don't hate them. So that's the best thing in the world, to find someone you can authentically. Authentically means not by turning your intelligence off. You know, a person you can authentically love, you can truly love them and admire them. Again, it's right there in the scriptures, you know, pride and prejudice. Anyway, I won't go into all that. So, but it's... um. So imagine when you come to Krishna, when you come to Krishna, Krishna is infinitely attractive, infinitely lovable. So your love can expand unlimitedly, and therefore your pleasure expands unlimitedly. Until you find someone you can love unlimitedly, you can never have unlimited pleasure. So and that's so why, that's yeah, why. So you mean to say that. Um, as is your love and devotion, so is your realization. That yeah, that is true. Yes. But um, and and they actually they actually help each other because as you realize more, you love more, and as you love more, you realize more. Yes. True. Thank you. So that much. that's why that's why atheistic humanism is a dead end because humans are kind of you know, I mean you know they're nice and everything, but but it's really seeing human beings as parts of God that, and seeing all creatures, that's when the real love starts. Mm. Thank you, Prabhuji. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Maharaj. Very wonderful. Anyone else uh, has any question is giving his valuable time and we are really very grateful. Um, anyone has uh, more questions? Yes, I have one. 
Sure. And um, you have a camera? Do you have, do you have a video? Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Hold We'd on. like to see you. Okay. <laughs> it won't come on right now. Ow. I don't know why. Let me go out of here. Okay. Here I go. I don't know why it won't come on. I guess you're confused. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going back. I got to go backwards. Hold on. Okay. Start the video. Hey. Hi. Oh my God. I love, I love your humor. That's a, that is uh, attraction. You know, um, taking our, you know, I take what, how I feel about the divine totally serious. And I hear a lot about, you know, um, having fun with it too, because um, everything's so serious today, you know, <laughs> and, you know, we, we don't know how to laugh at ourselves sometimes. And a big thing for me is forgiveness. That has really been a big thing in my life with the divine learning how to practice is forgiveness with myself and with others. Yes. You know, it's, it's a big, it's a, when I, when I always try to focus on, you know, love them, Rose, love them, you know, love them. They're sick, <laughs> love them. And, you know, I pray for them too, you know, cause that, that tech cuts the, the chain off of my leg and gets me back into the divine and love. Yes, that's some practice that I I have practiced for a long time because I was very resentful and jealous, and today I don't find that. Very good, well done. And that's because of the spiritual journey. You know, it's yes. a beautiful way and open mindedness too. I I was very closed minded. I grew up in a religion that, you know, um, I wasn't good enough. Right. You know, and today I, the, the beauty, I see God in everything, the divine in everything. Very good. And Excellent. Yeah. And it's all because of love and forgiveness. Yes, absolutely. You know? And practicing. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. You made me laugh. <laughs> well, good. I'm happy. And I grew up in the hippie days, so I. I that was when I was first introduced to Harry Krishna. Um, oh, 69 my. years old. So I yes, I grew up in Wilmington. I'm from Delaware. I grew up in Wilmington and I went to a lot of Harry Krishna up at the in downtown Wilmington. They had it at Rodney Square right. And, right, right. and at the airport. And all, I just loved Harry Krishna. I just Very loved good. It. and now here we are back together again. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. So any other Terrible. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Maharaj. Any, any, any more question anyone has? Uh, one more? Ro um, anyone? Okay. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. It's a pleasure. Yes, Maharaj. Um, we are very, very grateful that, you know, new community still you accepted our invitation. Um, I hope we will be getting more and more opportunity to hear from you. On behalf of uh, the community in Delaware and all the devotees, I want to thank you very much for your association, very valuable association. Thank you. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.
प्रभुपाद की जाए जाए महाराज की जाए हरे कृष्ण हरे कृष्ण